Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. We have almost made it to the end of 2022. I don't know if anyone else can believe it. I, it's hard for me to believe. I know that those of you in retail feel like the month of November and December has been a year in itself. Uh, you guys are fighting so many unique fraud trends and new issues that I know that this holiday season has been a lot. And honestly, no matter what sector of fraud fighting you're in, I think this year has been a lot. And I think part of the problem is we haven't really ever had a lull, especially since COVID. It's just continually gone up, up and up. And while we continue to get better at identifying fraud, we aren't as nimble, we aren't as flexible as the other side, and they've grown in masses, and they've also really adapted their techniques, and they're hitting from so many different directions, whether it's victim-assisted fraud or different malware strings or other things like that, that it's just, it feels hard and overwhelming. But I think if I can give you any words of wisdom for that overwhelm, it's to Make peace with what you can do and feel good about what you can do and what you have done because 95% of all fraud fighters I know are perfectionists and overachievers, but also workaholics. So I'm sure that you've done more than the average person ever would and could. And we ha that has to be enough. I think that's sometimes the struggle at the end of the year, especially as new volumes get higher and there's stress within the company to make certain benchmarks. It's just, it can be a lot, but I think that we have to be okay with being okay. And that's something that if my husband heard me say that, he would laugh hysterically because I think he even told me that yesterday. I myself am an overachiever and try to do it all and then get really frustrated when I can't. I guess we're all in that in different ways. Just a really quick programming note, because of a few different technical issues and other things. There's only going to be one episode this week. I think I had teased out a pretty exciting interview for this week with two senior leaders of two of the foremost federal law enforcement agencies within the U.S. that work on financial fraud investigations and then work with uh, prosecutors and U.S. district attorneys to prosecute those cases. I'm really excited about that interview being shared with you guys. These two leaders are really passionate about collaboration, both with their own agencies that historically haven't always worked well together, as well as with the merchant and bank and fintech industries. They recognize, just like we're noticing too, that fraud doesn't happen in a silo. Oftentimes it's connected to other types of crime. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks, whether it's the human trafficking and modern slavery that is enabling massive scale for some of the organized crime fraud rings that we are battling, especially the master manipulators, as Shoshana called them. I think that's really a brilliant term. And also 
child exploitation, as Ian and Terry talked about last week from the noble, and fraud is often connected to so many other things, as well as pig butchering and romance scams and all these other things that, and, you know, terrorism and all of that, that they recognize in addition to just being good, a good idea to try to identify and disrupt and displace these fraudsters. It can also shut down other types of crimes. I'm excited for when that interview comes up. It might not be till next, the first part of next year, but something to look forward to. This week, I'm going to talk a little bit about card testing, as well as a couple other things that have just been on my mind as the year is wrapping up. And as I talk to a lot of you, because while this podcast is about fraud, it is also about fraud fighters and the human aspect of us. But before I do that, I want to kind of start on a lighter note. Last Thursday, because of where I was at in my circumstances, I ended up spending seven days with two adorably cute three-year-old twin girls. It was not planned. It was for a, fa a family emergency that a good friend of mine had. And while you can only guess that something you go off of whatever the doctors tell you, and at first it was 24 hours, but then they just kept adding 24 hours and that was okay. What started out as a request to watch their kids for 24 hours, turned into seven days. And for the podcast last week, they inspired me to compare fraudsters to toddlers because I think there's a lot of similarities. And several of you reached out and said that you appreciated the, the lighter analogy and just some good laughs. And one of you actually, at least one tagged me, if anyone else posted about it, I don't know, but at least one of you tagged me and posted about it on your LinkedIn with your network. And I really appreciated that. It made my day. And I wanted to share those three additions to my three components of why or examples of why I felt like fraudsters and toddlers have a lot in common. And this particular fraud fighter has a lot of experience in both because they are you know, recently were promoted to run their own fraud department for pretty large brand and an up-and-coming one at that. But they also have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and one on the way, which, wow, I don't know if we can do it. I did fight fraud when my daughter was a toddler, but I it was a different time. And I don't know, at this age, I just couldn't, I could never do both. So lots of admiration to you all. So these are the three that he added that I wanted to just share with you guys because I thought that they were clever and very on point. Number one, Toddlers and fraudsters will take the path of least resistance. If you're chasing either, you may block one path, but they'll find another way to get around your defenses. You need to present multiple controls that can pivot quickly to thwart your, their attempts to get past you. Oh my goodness, is that so true? I think that's what I was trying to get at when my first analogy as far as they'll do anything to get what they want. But I think it's the part about multiple controls is so important especially as we see fraud continually evolve and adapt and change over the last few months, especially some of these manipulations are really low level. They're not very technical, but they're almost using the specific tools that a company is using against themselves. So they've identified how to get past them in some creative ways. When you have multiple controls, when you don't just rely on one sole solution provider or one internal tool, it makes it harder for them to get around because now they have to deploy multiple offenses to your defenses. The second example is that toddlers and fraudsters are like zombies, which of course I love because that I think is a play on 
my other analogy that I've used for years that fighting fraud is a lot like fighting zombies. And they go on to say, just when you think you've put them down, they show up in the middle of the night and kick you in the face. Sounds like someone that has experience with toddlers kicking them in the face. And I think the fraudster part of kicking you in the face was not literal. <laughs> but certainly in the middle of the night, we have all had to get up all night or stay up all night to address a specific attack or fix something that's broken within the fraud ecosystem or your risk stack. So definitely relate to that. And lastly, toddlers and fraudsters can both do, th they can both do things that are incredibly frustrating while simultaneously making us admire their creativity. My daughter, when she was younger, and I'm sure most of you have similar stories, got into some, they were washable, but still got into some markers and decided to draw a picture on the wall. <laughs> and it was a beautiful picture, but at the same time, that's not where we color. That's not where we draw and that's not okay. And when it comes to fraudsters, there's been several times in my career and especially the last few months where I can be like, damn, that was really smart. I'm really ticked because now it's like, what are we going to do to address it or what are we going to do to identify it? But huh, I can admire the creativity. I can admire the thinking outside the box. If anything, fraudsters are really good QA testers, quality assurance. I know for those of you in tech, you know that whenever a new rollout for the website or for a product is about to happen, it goes through a QA process. And those QA analysts often try to break things and often try to figure out Okay, if I push this button and then that button, is it still going to work or that type of thing? And I often, especially recently, have been saying like fraudsters are really good QA testers, not just for the merchant side, but for vendors too. Because like I just mentioned, there are some, there are signs and it has already happened where in some cases, especially this group, though I don't expect them to be the only ones, have identified some of the tools that online companies rely on most for verification of different identifiers, name, address, email, phone number, IP address, etc., or actual fraud scoring tools. And they've found ways to manipulate and almost go unseen to some of them. It's really fascinating, but also terrifying. This is the first time where I've really seen this at a scale that is pretty monumental. I guess if anything, as we start to, as things start to get quiet these last couple weeks of 2022, I think we really do need to rest up because this fight is not going anywhere. And yeah, it's exhausting and we're tired. And a lot of us have been going full stop to like full throttle since COVID started. But hopefully you can get some time to renew and rest and be ready to get started in the new year. I have a lot of hopes for you all in the new year and for how Fraudology can support you as well. And I know that, like I said just a few minutes ago, Fraudology isn't just about fraud, it's about the fraud fighter. And as I think about the next episode, or the last episode for 2022, I want to be able to provide some good advice, whether that's tactical or development, right? How do we put boundaries on our minds? How do we tell ourselves, you know what? Okay, we're doing as good as we possibly can. How do we remind ourselves of our priorities? I think that those things are just as important. So I'm open to feedback and suggestions. But with all of that, I'm going to dive into card testing a little bit. I know I've talked about it before, but over the last few, just the last couple of weeks, I've received a handful of texts and emails and a couple LinkedIn messages about card testing and asking, is it going up? Is this happening again? Are other people seeing it? And 
The answer is yes. It's actually been going up all year. Significantly, actually, card testing has grown 100 times since 2019. That statistic is from Stripe in a recent article that they released about a significant card testing attack that they saw on their network attacking their merchants that process through them. And uh, that article was also enlightening and I'll share a little bit more later, but just kind of taking a step back on what card testing is, especially for those of you who aren't necessarily on the credit card fraud side of things. The number one thing you need to commit credit card fraud is a working valid card, not your own. And oftentimes the way that the the life cycle works or the kind of where cards come from, there can be a fairly long period of time between when the cards are harvested and when they are used to be monetized. And that varies on several factors. But because of that, it's important for the people who are selling the cards to those who will monetize them, to those who will be committing credit card fraud, possibly on your websites, they need to know that the cards are valid. Otherwise, it's a dark web and all fraud shops are based on reputation. So if you start to have a reputation for sending out a high percentage of bad cards in parentheses, then people won't buy from you and they will tell everyone they know not to buy from you. So it's important for those who are selling cards to do that. Now, sometimes people will choose to buy unverified dumps, as they're called, just big long lists of credit card numbers because they're cheaper. But for the most part, and then they'll verify it themselves and do card testing. But for the most part, it's done usually by the person who has harvested the cards. The amount of card testing as well as where credit cards are coming from has definitely changed over the last two decades that I've been in this industry. It's harder to get a lot of credit card numbers. However, we just said a minute ago, and how fraudsters are like toddlers, they'll find a way. Some of the most common ways for cards to be exposed now, one of them is through information stealing malware on consumer computers, which I know I've talked about before, phishing websites that are posed as a credit card company. So sending an email or a text message saying this is your credit card company, or maybe they know which one it is. Maybe they know exactly you know who that person's credit card company is and saying that you need to Relog into your account or you need to enter in your credit card number. Phishing sites, that kind of thing, can also obtain quite a bit of card. And there are some people who this is their entire job is committing data breaches or working hard to get the cards and then just resell them. Within each part of the life cycle, for the longest time, this has been separate roles where they sell to each other. Now, obviously, with the master manipulator group that Shoshana and I talked about two weeks ago, that's changing. And I've seen it in a couple other groups, too, where they're starting to have different skill sets all in-house. And that makes it a little harder because they're not having conversations on dark web sites or Telegram or Discord groups that we can monitor just for all intents and purposes for this. We'll just say it's a different person. In addition to those, there's still some Magecart attacks on websites. I don't know that much about it. And I know I've heard it called Magcart and Magecart. And I apologize. I know that there's a, it's a type of manipulation, mostly for smaller and medium-sized businesses online where credit card numbers are exposed during the authorization process while the card number is being sent to the payment processor before it's been encrypted. That's about all I know. So I apologize for that. But one of the main ways that credit card numbers are exposed is still through point of sale malware on in-store point of sale devices, mostly for small and medium businesses. Sometimes it's also supply chain attacks and that type of thing, like we talked about with Target a few weeks ago, where it wasn't them that 
necessarily had any data security issues. It was an HVAC vendor that because they needed access to some of the network, they somehow got default access to all of the network. And so when the HVAC company was compromised, then <laughs> those hackers got hit the mother load, essentially, where they got access to so many card numbers, millions, I think, of card numbers that were captured by Target in-store. It wasn't online. So many times when people, you'll talk to people who get their credit card stolen and they're like, I didn't purchase anything online, so I don't know how my card got stolen. And it's actually because of PCI and other regulations and best practices over the years, that's very difficult. It's typically in-store. I don't know if I ever talked about the story of the first or the only really case, federal case that I testified in. That's a much longer story, but the way that the cards were being obtained was through malware that was installed on small and medium businesses. And one of those businesses was a pizza shop in a fairly affluent area of Seattle. And this was about nine years ago or so. And they, so a hacker installed malware on that POS, I think from a phishing website or something like that. And from that point on, anytime the credit card was run through the POS system, the credit card number was also sent to the host of the malware, which was this hacker. It ended up being a really young, I think, teenage guy in Eastern Europe. He was doing this in businesses all over the U.S., but because so many customers and and they were, a lot of them had connections within the city and all of that, squeaky wheels in Greece and all that. But because the so many customers complained to the Seattle Police Department about it and said, my credit card was stolen and it looks like it was from this pizza shop, the police department went out and a detective went out and started investigating and then pulled in the local secret service agent. And they then tracked it all the way through and were able to identify and prosecute several of the players within that ring. At the end of the day, it was just all coming from that small business and then was being collected by this guy in eastern Ukraine. And by the once he would get a certain number of credit cards, then he would sell the list. But before he sold the, sold the list, he wanted to verify those cards. He wanted to make sure that they were active and that they could be used and authorized. Otherwise, it's going to impact his reputation. So then he would card test. So using that example, the way that oftentimes card testing is going to happen is... Sorry, I'm going to pause it really fast. I've been, I just lost my point. <laughs> Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other 
business models. For some clients, they use sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So there's different ways to test cards. One is a, this used to happen a lot more. It doesn't happen as much now, but one of the easiest ways is to for the bad actor to obtain a merchant account, a payment processing account, especially when online payment processors became popular. This was definitely exploited for a long time. Uh, they'd set up a merchant account and just charge $1 transactions all day long or 50 cents or $5 or they tried different amounts, right? So one would be for 83 cents and another one would be for 52 cents, something like that. But all they're trying to do is just see if the card's working. And they're also trying to make sure that it doesn't raise any red flags. I think oftentimes card testers and just credit card fraudsters in general think that issuing banks are looking at the risk and activity probably more than we certainly feel like they are on the merchant side. I know that it's a group effort, but because of where liability stands, obviously companies are going to invest where their liability is. And for card not present transactions, that's on the merchant. While issuing banks do have those flags and it depends on the country as well. Some countries are very diligent about it as well. A lot of times if they see a small dollar transaction go across, they're not going to instantly think, oh, this person's credit card is stolen. Whereas if they just went and tried with a fresh credit card number and they didn't know if it was valid yet or not, and they just tried with a $500 transaction or a $1,000 transaction, then they couldn't sell that card number, right? Because then the cardholder or the merchant or the bank will identify the fraud. So that's why the amount needs to be lower. The other reason why they wouldn't want, in addition to not wanting to have a bunch of bad cards, it looks very risky whenever somebody tries four or five or seven or eight cards before they get one through on a transaction. So this way there's a lot less risk for that because you're buying a list of verified cards that at least up until a week ago or two weeks ago still worked because chances are they were compromised months before so they have to verify it and then they'll sell it that's why they're doing the small dollar purchases but it's been more difficult to obtain a merchant account for fraudsters and bad actors over the years because kyc processes have gotten better because there's been so lot so many losses and some pressure from other parts of the ecosystem as well the other way is to use a legitimate merchant account but without permission like i said they prefer the low dollar transactions it was very common back in the day for donation sites to have the ability to enter in any amount of money. So you could enter in a $1 transaction. So when I was a risk analyst on the payment processor side, I would often see there'd be a church or a some kind of 5013C, like a nonprofit organization that had a website for donations. And you would see $50, $100, $200 here, there, maybe a few a day. And then all of a sudden you would see thousands of transactions for $1 donations on all different cards. And you'd see about half of them being declined by the bank because they were already closed. That would scream card testing. But they also know that we're on the lookout for $1 transactions. So sometimes they'll mix it up a little bit. And unfortunately, if a small business sets up a default account with some of the online processors and some of the online platforms, 
there can sometimes be a default for a customer, quote unquote, to be able to get a low dollar transaction. So a $1 transaction, even if that's not the price points of the items. And I don't know exactly how that works, but I definitely know that there's some kind of a setting that allows that to happen. So that's something that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why card testing is becoming so big now is because so many small and medium businesses went online during COVID and over the last three years. And most of them don't know these things. Most of them really genuinely think that if they get an authorization on a credit card, that's their money to keep. And that means that is that person who owns the card and or that the bank will take care of it. And they don't realize that that could have been fraud until 30 or 60 days later when a chargeback is received and their bank account is debited. And sometimes they can't make their rent or their payroll. I have had these conversations with these kinds of small businesses way too often. Oftentimes they'll find me through my website or another way or through friend of friend or something like that. And I feel like it's, a lot of it's counseling. I do hope for the day that more processors will provide more resources for new businesses online up front. I've actually provided a proposal to one of the large payment processors for online saying, hey, I've been hearing from a lot of your customers and I'd be happy to provide whether that is a, a fun 30-minute training course or an ebook or something like that, where it really clearly says, hey, this is your responsibility to figure out, is this person who they say they are? And here are some risks that you should look out for. And maybe suggest a lower dollar, lower, but something for velocity checks and fraud rules, et cetera. But so they'll oftentimes small businesses are, are targets of that because fraudsters have figured out, oh, if they use this platform, then if they didn't uncheck that box, and I'm not exactly quite sure which one it is, then I can go in and initiate a $1 transaction. Once they find a way, once they find a site that will let them do it, they will just, they'll write a script and run them through. Sometimes it's thousands in an hour. Um, they'll also sometimes use phone apps or websites for quick service restaurants and food delivery. I've seen this a lot as well in my consulting with working with a couple of the larger brands of fast food restaurants and quick service restaurants in the U.S. where they'll run a transaction under $20 to verify that the card is active and get a free lunch. That happens way too often. So that's, and because that's a common thing on a credit card purchase, it's not going to look suspicious. $13 at a pizza place or gosh, maybe I'm craving pizza now. <laughs> or at a hamburger place or Chinese food or whatever it is, that isn't going to look suspicious. They're testing the card. They're also getting free food. And unfortunately, that puts a big target on those companies' backs. But that is a whole, they're, they've got their own, just like every vertical, they have their own kind of special types of fraud that will target them more often than other companies. They'll, like I said, they'll try to keep the card testing slow just not to raise any flags. And once or if the merchant or payment processor identifies the activity, they can temporarily pause all transactions until they install velocity rules and exception reporting and other just kind of basic level fraud prevention tools, whether that's limits on number of transactions, you in a certain time limit or anything like that. But sometimes, especially for some of these websites for small businesses that go dormant and don't have a lot of transactions, they can go undetected for days. And on the card testing where they're actually buying a product, that gets even trickier. So... It's a challenge everywhere. And depending on the business model, this activity, like I said, can be curbed fairly quickly with velocity rules and exception reporting, but not. It really depends on several factors on how they're attacking you. Are they using you via bots? Are they attacking you using what we would usually call human bot farms? But now I can't ever use that term without thinking about 
which is Sean and I talked about a few weeks ago and what also came up on my conversation with Ian and Terry last week from The Noble. So that is hard because I no longer think of them as human bots anymore. I think of them as humans who may not be doing it because they want to. They may be doing it against their will. So the biggest question I've been being asked lately, especially about this, is why now? And I would say it's never really gone away, but there certainly have been some factors that have made it more significant. There's more opportunities for payment fraud. There's more opportunities for committing different types of fraud. So that can be a real challenge where, especially with these larger groups, they're just tearing through credit cards left and right and they keep needing more supply. But also there's a few other reasons. And one person thought that it might have been because of the one of the headlines that came up in October. So just two months ago this year where more than 1.2 million cards were given away on a newer dark web carding marketplace. So they basically just said, here, you can download this list of 100 or 1.2 million card numbers. What more than likely happened is so many different groups put them into a scripted attack and used them all in different ways for as much as possible. And then they got reissued. So my guess is that those cards are no longer out there. However, Whenever there's a finite resource, and for the most part, credit card numbers have gotten harder to obtain, so they're finite, people will find a way to reuse and recycle, as we would say. In this case, I know that some, some groups or some fraudsters will just buy lists of expired or shut down cards, and they can monetize those still, either by social engineering the cardholder, and when they call them, they'll say, oh, this is your bank. And they did it to me once I almost fell for it because the caller ID was spoofed to say the name of my specific bank. And at the time, this was several years ago, that wasn't common. And so I that threw me off for a minute. But then I asked my standard questions and pretty quickly realized, yeah, you are not my bank. But their whole point was they knew who my bank was because of the first six digits of my card. But my current card had been closed because of fraud. So they called, said the name of my bank, and said, we, we know that you, we understand that you had fraud on your account. We just want to make sure you got your new card. Oh, great. Can you just read those numbers to me so I know that it's the right one? Oh, great. And the expiration date and CVV? Perfect. All right, you're good to go. Go have a good day. And now they have your new card number. Additionally, there is some math that can be done, and this is not my expertise. I know about the Mod 10 algorithm and had to learn it when I was going through <laughs> A pretty extensive training to be on the call center for a payment processor. It was like six weeks of training. And we, so we had to learn like everything about payments, which is partially why I feel like a walking payments dictionary sometimes. And I understand chargeback so well and processes and things. And I think I got more training than almost anyone, at least at the beginning of my career. All the rest has been OJT on the job training. But there is every credit card, when you put it through the mod 10 algorithm, it will have the same number result. And that's how uh, oftentimes some computers will just double check that works first before they'll even run it through authorization or some systems will double check that the card number can be run through the mod 10 and then go to authorize it. Otherwise, it's not a valid card number. Some people have gotten smart and figured out specific formula that specific banks use to fit the mod 10, but also maybe they have a specific equation that they use to get that new number. And if you know how to do that, like I said, it's something that Alexander Hall talked about on a very early on podcast episode with him. I want to say it was like a year and a half ago or so, but he definitely talked about this and how he's been able to reuse it in his past life. I know that it varies by banks. Not all banks are crackable anymore. Not all banks have that, but that is something to know that 
even when a card number is shut down, there's still ways to make money off of it. And they've figured that out. So, you know, and if they have all of the other identifiers with your name along with your card number, then there are other types of fraud that can be done as well, not using your credit card. But as mentioned in the Stripe article, and I said that earlier too, there's more small businesses being loaded online. And so there's more opportunities for card testing for uh, these bad actors. And sometimes non-issuing banks will see this too, or non-payment processors will see this too, depending on where you sit in the flow. And so it's important to be aware of that and know how to identify it. Stripe also recently published an article disclosing a large attack between February and August of this year on their merchant site. I know that they're not the only ones who provide payment processing or e-commerce platforms for a lot of like thousands, if not millions at this point, e-commerce stores. And that was very challenging for them. But in that article, it talked about how they addressed it. It was written more like a press release, but they quoted Will Megson, who was a guest on Fraudology in the very, very beginning when he was actually running his startup Bouncer, which Stripe ended up buying a couple years ago. And Will is very smart. And he talked about how they used machine learning to be able to respond to it using their Stripe radar tool as well as some of the timing pieces, right? So looking at the volume per hour or how many cards per device are being used and then over time, those type of things. Again, velocity. And I know that, like I said, other similar companies were seeing that as well around the same time. More processors, I don't know, I just, I feel like it is the processor's duty to identify those more. There were some articles, I think I shared one of them a few months ago about a card testing attack by, on a small business that was run by Stripe. And I had questions about why they hadn't noticed that because the merchant account had only had a handful of $50 transactions over months. And then all of a sudden, within the course of a weekend, they had tens of thousands of card testing orders and so many declines. And so I don't know why that wasn't automatically detected, but that really just varies based on a provider and all that. So it is also obviously best practice for everyone to be looking at their volume daily and just making sure there isn't anything that looks unexpected. Um, the I also wanted to mention that when I reached out to a group of merchants that I work with fairly regularly and asked them, hey, are you guys seeing any card testing? One of them lives in Hong Kong, actually, and said that there were quite a few card testing events that happened two weeks ago on two different cards that are most common in Hong Kong. One of them was Charter Standard Bank or Standard Charter Bank. Now I forgot which order it goes. I apologize for that, but that is one that one was published in a headline, so I feel like I can say that. The other one that she mentioned, I couldn't find an article about it. There may be other things happening to cause this as well, but they did mention that all of the card testing, although they were cards from Hong Kong and oftentimes the device was in China, they were being used on U.S. e-commerce sites, of course, because we are the biggest target for many reasons. And I have talked about that before. So the last thing I kind of want to talk about is why does it matter, especially if you're not shipping merchandise out? Why does card testing matter? So first of all, all processors have to pay network fees per transaction. Transactions run through the Visa and MasterCard network. It used to be called VisaNet. I don't know if that's still what they're calling it. They have to pay network fees. And then they pass those on to each individual merchant, often with additional fees on top. And usually the way merchants will see it is an authorization fee, which is checking to see if the card is valid. And even if it's declined. So even if there were a thousand credit cards run through your account yesterday and all of them were declined, 
but you have a 10 cent authorization fee. Now you've paid $100 in authorization fees for that fraudster to check and see if those cards are active. That's why it matters. One of the reasons. Additionally, if that authorization is approved and the transaction is settled, now you're on the risk of chargebacks. And yes, some issuing banks will not issue chargebacks below a certain dollar amount because it's not worth it to them. Sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 50, sometimes it's 10. You don't know what that limit is. But even if they don't file a chargeback on those, uh, TC40s will be filed for each settled transaction. Every time somebody calls in and says, hey, my card was stolen or they realized their card was stolen because there were lots of bigger purchases made after that first one. The bank will go through and say, look, make sure you've made all of these purchases. And if they see a $1 transaction for your website, they'll say, no, that was fraud too. That gets marked up as a TC40 report. If you do not know what I'm talking about and you think I'm getting this mixed up with TPS reports from Office Space or something like that, uh, I recommend you go back to the episode. I think it was titled something around the different, knowing the differences between the Visa Fraud Monitoring Program and the Chargeback Monitoring Program. That's when I geeked out about TC40s, but TC40s can impact you in two different ways. One of them is if you have too many of them, you can be put on the Visa Fraud Program and MasterCard has something similar. They used to call it the RIS report, the RIS report. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if that matters what it used to be called. That's just the list that I used to get. I used to call it the naughty list, that and the chargeback, excessive chargeback monitoring list when I was a risk analyst, because I was the one that had to deliver that bad news to my merchants in my portfolio. And so basically they, if you get enough, if you have enough accumulated, you can be put on a list for fees and fines because you're not doing enough to stop fraud. Additionally, though, and this is something that not everyone realizes, issuers will often use the TC40 report to identify risky merchants, whether that's, oh, this looks like a merchant that was set up just to run card testing or just to run money laundering and other types of things. Or this is a merchant that isn't doing enough fraud prevention because they're settling too many fraud transactions. They will then start declining transactions on your website. And it is very difficult to reverse that. It's very challenging. So you don't want to be on that naughty list. <laughs> And as far as things to do for this, it obviously depends on your business model. If you're a merchant with low dollar transactions, often it's good to create velocity rules for volume over time. Looking at the total time of purchase to buy the scripted attacks and the bots attacks, ensure that your system can't be manipulated to allow custom dollar amounts on anything, including gift cards. If you have electronic gift cards, it's not good to have an open dollar amount. It should be a minimum of $20 or $25. You should be giving them increments to select. That is mostly due to card testing, though there's other reasons for that too. If you're a bank or a payment processor or fintech, like I mentioned before, create alerts for any volume anomalies on your sub-merchant account. Anything that's twice as high as it is usually, either historically on this date, if they're seasonal, or over the last several days, it's worth flagging and researching. And then, then there's always what happens to the cards after they've had a successful transaction that's been via card testing. Those are then either sold at a higher verified rate or used by the person who tested them and to make higher dollar purchases, which is what we usually refer to as card fraud or carding. And if you are a merchant at all, you this is what keeps you most busy in life. And I was joking, but at the bottom of my notes, I said, and that is how credit card fraud is made. I don't know. I thought it was funny, but that may not mean a thing. But anyway, I wanted to run through that because it seems like it's a topic that keeps coming up. And I just wanted to give you guys a rundown as well as a resource so that the next time someone asks me 
about card testing, I can say, oh, listen to the episode from December 14th. And there we go. So I'm going to wrap it up from here, you guys. I really hope that you are trying to enjoy these last few weeks of the year and that you do take some time to reflect on what you're proud of that you've done this year and maybe one or two things that you want to work on next year. I really get in a weird sentimental reflective mood around this time, but I think it's good because if we aren't learning, then we aren't changing and we aren't growing. That's my two cents. But with that, I will look forward to speaking with you on next week's episode, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.